Jenny C. from Dallas, Texas. I'm probably going to cry. Hi, y'all. My name is Jenny. I'm a grateful member of Al-Anon. Thank you. Yeah, no, it was a mess. Thank you. Thank you. It was all my fault. My tiny purse. Um, I'm um, super shaking, but I, so I'm just going to start talking, and God will take over here at some point. And uh, it'll be okay once that happens. Um, I would like to thank the committee for having me um, and for putting on and for showing up to all the meetings. And I've served on committees for these kinds of things. And so um, I say meetings with my um, teeth gritted because I know what they're like. They're not always fun, but it's a lot of work. And I appreciate all the work and effort so we can come together in this special way that's different from a regular meeting. Um, And for making me feel welcome and for having me, quite frankly, for for bringing me here. And, uh, of course, I've only gotten to hear two of the speakers, but I certainly want to thank Ron and Maddie for telling great stories and for sharing yourselves with us. And I look forward to hearing the others. Um, If for no other reason, then it will not be me talking. (laughs) Um, And I would like to thank, um, of course, Joy and Barbara, for taking good care of me. It was, it's been weird having my sponsor as my host, but it's been lovely to have time and to uh, practice receiving. And, you know, um, there would have been a time I would have told you that what I just wanted was to be treated like a princess and act like a princess, but the truth is I don't take well to that sort of environment. Um, and then, of course, all my, my friends that I know from when I used to live here, spoiler alert, um, and for coming out, and for everybody else who took time out of your days and money out of your pocket to come and participate, because um, you know, it's, if it was just the committee sitting here, this, it would just be like the, another committee meeting. It wouldn't be the fun that it is. And so, all the work was worth it when everybody shows up and has a good time. Okay. Um, all right. So now I'll start talking, and I got my clock, and I got my Kleenex. Um, so I started coming to Al-Anon in 1993 November 1st is the date I picked I don't know if that's really the date or not who cares Uh, November 1st of 1993 is the date that I use um, and I was young then thank you (laughs) I was was 24 um I appreciated Maddie talking about how old everybody is in Al-Anon, because that was the truth for me when I showed up. Um, I actually, um, I grew up in an alcoholic home, and I want to clarify that definition. Uh, I used that definition in the context of um, there was alcoholism in my home. Um, I don't know if any of my family, I don't know of any of my family members who have ever have ever designated themselves as an alcoholic. Uh, oddly enough, my um, dad's drinking never bothered me, um, but all of the rest of it did. All of the rest of it. Um, I remember at a very young age knowing a few things intuitively that nobody taught me, nobody had to tell me, but I knew some things like, if I wanted to achieve anything, I would need to aim low because that's as good as I could do. That if there was, uh, and if there was, like, so if there was uh, uh, boys that, that I liked and one was super cute and popular and then one was kind of okay and then one was uh, 
gross and awful. And it was necessary for gross and awful because I needed to be able to put myself in the hierarchy above somebody. But I couldn't get above, I couldn't get too high up because I wasn't good enough to be. So it was always whoever was in the middle. If there was somebody that I liked, I would go, I would, I would aim at his friend because I didn't think I could get the one that I liked. Um, I did okay in school, I think because I was smart and I was kind of a rule follower. Um, I'm also unbelievably stubborn and defiant, so I don't, it was, it's very arbitrary, the rules that I choose to follow. <laughs> There's literally no rhyme or reason to it whatsoever. I can't even discern a pattern. But I, <laughs> I did always feel like that whenever I was in a room that I had walked in five minutes after all the instructions had been given out, and the last instruction was in don't tell any, don't tell Jenny. Um, I would say don't tell anybody else, but I'm absolutely certain that I was the only one singled out for not receiving the instructions. I was always the one singular, only, and worst victim of any circumstance that has ever occurred. Um, so, but I, I, don't, I don't remember anybody telling me that I was less than, or that I couldn't do as good, or that I should aim low, that I should never expect to have anything great. I don't know that anybody ever told me that. Um, I just knew it. I just intuitively understood it, and I behaved accordingly. Uh, we moved around a lot when I was a kid. We moved about every four years. So I lived in a lot of different places. Uh, and I do remember that every time we would make these moves, I still don't fully understand the nature of the moves, whether they were geographic cures or if it was just, I don't know, who knows, whatever. It doesn't matter. We moved about every four years, and I can remember distinctly every time we would move, I remember thinking this time it will be different. I'll have a new shot. The new people at the new school will not know what a loser I am, and I'll have a chance this time. This time it will be different. And every time we went to a new school, it was exactly the same because I brought me with me, and I brought all my stuff with me, and I didn't know what that stuff was. Uh, I didn't know what to call it. I didn't know where it came from. So my assumption, of course, was that I am just irretrievably broken. I am, you know, I am the problem. I am a problem, whatever, but I am irretrievably broken. Um, I, my parents got divorced when I was 19-ish, I don't know, something like that. And uh, we were living in Ohio, which was to me the weirdest place we ended up, right outside of Cleveland. Um, Yes? (laughs) Tell them I'll call them back. Okay, thanks. All right, so we were living outside of Cleveland, and my parents uh, were going to get divorced. And my mom called me. I was living with my dad at the time because this is what my dad did. He would leave and go. He'd get a new job. He would go to where we were going to move, find a house, come back, and then they would sit us all down and tell us we're moving. Um, and I don't know if that maybe that's appropriate because what was I going to do at 15, 14, 15? I didn't have a say. I hadn't. I spent no money. I made no contributions to society. I had no vote. So they told us that we were going to move, and, and then my dad would take off and go start his new job and move, and my mom would stay behind, and she, she would manage selling the house, closing the house, moving the house, three kids, taking us out of school, putting us in, the, you know, all this stuff. My dad would just go and start his job and be ready for us when we finally got there. Well, I had been in college for two years. I got to go to college. Uh, I can also remember distinctly thinking when I went to college that I was I was entitled to go to college um, and that I was entitled for my parents to pay for it and um, that I was entitled to a monthly allowance to spend on whatever I wanted to spend on and um, and I don't I know now that that wasn't true those were all gifts and my family worked hard to send me that money and to provide that experience for me. And um, so then what I did was I went to school, and if you had uh, accused me of, tell, if you had accused me of being there to find a husband, I would have stabbed you. But the truth is that's what I was doing. I was there looking for a husband. Uh, that did not work out, probably for the best. <laughs> I don't know that I met any that would have made good husbands. <laughs> um, But I ended up dropping out of school. Uh, That was at the University of Oklahoma. I dropped out of the University of Oklahoma after two years with terrible grades and 
was promises to come back as soon as I took a little break, and, and of course I never went back. Uh, but I ended up in Ohio because I kept thinking that, you know, when I, when I went to college, it was my, every time we moved, it was um, where we were living was the problem. And then when I went to college, it was my family that was the problem. And then when I went to Ohio to go back to school, it was that Oklahoma was the problem. And that, that may have been partially true. <laughs> I'm not saying for sure, but it may have been. But, so I was going to go to Ohio and go to college, and I knew that if I could just get back into school, then everything would be okay. And so I moved to, to Ohio, and then my family got divorced, and my mom, call, or my, my mom says she's going to divorce my dad, and she calls me up one day, and she says, um, we're going to be destitute and living on the streets if I don't understand what your father has. And I don't know if those were the words she said. That's what I heard. I don't know what she told me. That's what I heard. What I heard was is that if I didn't, uh, I, that I needed to uh, rifle through my dad's belongings and inventory his property and send a list of all his valuables and assets to my mom so that she could tell her lawyer so that we wouldn't have to eat cat food at a homeless shelter. Um, and so I did that. I did that. I did all that. And then um, in a fit of <laughs> grand fit of self-righteousness, I stole his uh, $800 VCR and put it in the back of the Trans Am that I didn't pay for and drove it back to Oklahoma as though I were entitled to all of that. Um, When I was given the Trans Am, it was the second car that I had been given as a gift, and I was as annoyed with it as I was the first car because the first one was too redneck and the second one was even more redneck. So I drove, I drove my free car with my dad's $800 VCR back to Oklahoma because I felt like we were, I was entitled to that and we were entitled to some form of compensation for all the horribleness. Um, I did, in a fit of maturity that I don't believe that I even possessed at the time, when I got back to Oklahoma, I boxed that thing up and I shipped it back because I knew I didn't have a right to take that and that belonged to him. Um, and... Uh, y'all can Google VCR later. Okay. All right. It just, just it, the equivalent would be like $12,000 for, I'm going to say, an iPad. Okay. So, um, I um, was sure that there was always something else that if I could just get that thing right, then I'd be okay. And it was always something. And we were talking about this today. And here's the thing. If the thing that you're look, if you're, if you've got a, a thing that's out there that as soon as you can get to that thing, then you will be happy. I can promise you now, sorry to be the one to tell you, but there will never be enough things. You'll never get there. There's never enough. As long as I was looking for something outside of me in order for it to be a certain way in order to be happy, there was never, it could never be right. I got back in school and it wasn't enough. And I had boyfriends and it wasn't enough. And I got jobs and da 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 And it was never enough until I was willing to be happy right where I was at that moment with what I had just then. Um, and I'm still shaking so it doesn't sound like that that's happened yet, but I can assure you that it has. <laughs> So I uh, was sure at this point in my life that the problem was still my family and that I just needed to get back in school. And if I could just get back into school, I could be happy and everything would be okay. And so I, I ended up back in Oklahoma for a bit. And then I decided I would move to Atlanta where my grandparents lived and um, get started to get back in school because school was the big thing. Um, and, and I'm really, I'm having these weird moments where I keep forgetting where I'm at, and, and like I've been gone long enough that, that this isn't really my home anymore, but, but y'all are my people, and it's weird, and so I keep forgetting that, I, I keep getting confused. I'm in Atlanta right now. Okay. I'm fit, physically, that's where we all are. We're in Atlanta. Okay. It's very confusing in my brain. So I moved to Atlanta, uh, and I, I don't want to say I was 20, and I moved in with my grandparents. Um, who I adored, but at 20, living with old people seemed hard at times. And it was. I mean, the first night that I went out and stayed till 2 a.m., I have never seen them so angry. That's possibly the only time they've ever really been angry at me in my whole life. I mean, goodness, they're my grandparents, right? 
And um, so I didn't do that anymore. I was immediately given an 11 o'clock curfew, which I thought was unreasonable. But I got to spend this time with them. Uh, it didn't, I, even at the moment, I wasn't unaware of the gift that I got to spend time with them that none of my siblings or my cousin ever got to do. And we have a relationship um, like nobody, like nobody else. And my sweet grandpa, well, he was only sweet to me. He was kind of a jerk to everybody <laughs> But um, my sweet grandpa, was he passed away in January. It was 101 and 11 months. But I was living with them, and I had a job, and I was back in school, and things seemed to be fine. Uh, and I met a boy, and then that seemed like it was going to make everything okay, but... I never, he was, I had aimed low with him. I aimed low, and not because he was a terrible person. He wasn't a terrible person. Um, I, uh, we, we were not good together. He was not a good fit for me. Uh, and I certainly brought as good as, I, I brought as much junk and garbage into that relationship as he did. Um, but the truth is, is I never, I didn't really ever think he was all that cute, and I never really liked him all that much. But my thought was, this was the thought, and this was another thing. I don't know where I got this message, but it was a message I intuitively understood, that I was such a loser um, that the thing that would broadcast to the rest of you that I wasn't a loser was a guy. This guy was willing to love me, then you guys wouldn't think I was such a loser. Um, that is, there's nothing about that sentence that's right or good, anything. It's the worst, the worst um, but I stuck around with him knowing that I didn't love him and that I would never marry him because I thought it was better than nothing. And then one day, uh, things got pretty bad and nothing sounded a whole lot better than what that garbage was. And we broke up and I was in, I was in college. And by this time I was paying my own way for school, still not completely grateful for all the other free money and cars and things that I've been given. But by this time I was working and putting myself through school. I went to Georgia State. Um, and and that, that was amazing. I went to art school. I recommend it. If your children want to go to art school, let them go to art school. It's an amazing experience. An amazing experience. Um, but I was with a friend and one of my girlfriends at school and we were we had gone to some something for school, some work assignment to, to see an artist or something. And we were leaving there, and I'd just broken up with this guy, and I was complaining about it. And I just couldn't stop talking about it. And because we were in art school, it was all very, I mean, I, I wasn't around for sort of that, you know, the, the poet and the, I don't know, the, what am I talking about, you know, the 60s and the, yeah, and we're going to have to talk about it and tell poetry. But I, I'm pretty sure that it had the same amount of angst and drama associated with it. There was a lot of complaining, a lot of whining. And so my friend interrupts me and she says, was your dad a drinker? And I was like, I didn't understand. It was like she just came out of left field with this random question. And I was like, you're not paying attention. We're talking about this and this and this. But what she was able to see, she was able to see herself and me. And she'd been coming to Al-Anon for, I think, three years at the time. And I said, yeah, why, whatever. And then we went and had a burrito at a place that I, I think the health department shut down years ago. Um, and she told me about Al-Anon. And I had been to Al-Anon. I, I have a weird, very specific, very vivid memory of going to a basement of a church that still had like beanbags on the floor and pillows on the floor and it was the cement block walls and it was probably institutional green. Uh, and that, I feel like that was an Alateen meeting. Uh, I don't know. I just, I have that very vivid memory. And then also one time we were all sitting in the floor watching TV uh, and my mom comes in and with this and she comes striding in and gets in front of the TV and says, your father's an alcoholic and we're all going to Al-Anon. And I remember getting really super excited about that because drama, um, there was a problem that wasn't my fault 
The same like something that people would feel sorry for us about. So self-pity and attention, or pity and attention. And I was super excited about this whole situation, that my dad was an alcoholic. You know, I don't know. We're not right. I realize it's inappropriate. I shouldn't use we. I was not right. Um, but we went to this Al-Anon meeting, and there was all these really old women who were my age now. And they gave me a newcomer's packet, and they said, keep coming back. And, uh, and we showed up with, we put, our, we put our mask on. We got all dressed up, and we put our mask on. Our, it was, we're hanging in, thanks. You know, strong and sad, just the right mix of both, and it was just ridiculous. And the lady said, keep coming back, and I, the timeline's all muddied with all this, but I did, I, that was a piece of instruction I chose to follow, and I went to another meeting, um, and I, the meeting that I went to was, it was huge, and, 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 uh, it felt, it felt like there was maybe 50 people in that meeting, and, and in the whole hour, three people shared, and they was angry and complaining, and there wasn't, what I didn't, what, and I'll tell you, I don't know what they shared, but I'll tell you, that's what I heard, that's what I heard, and they may have shared completely different things, but that's what I heard. What I didn't hear was an answer, I didn't hear a reason to keep coming back, I didn't hear a solution, I didn't hear hope, I didn't hear it could get better, and I was like, I'm out of here, so I left. So the day that my friend said, hey, there's this place called Al-Anon, it was by the grace of God that I didn't go, oh, thanks, but no thanks. Those people are crazy. I said, when and where, and I'll be there. And I went to my first meeting at the Galano Club. Some day in November in 1993. And um, I don't remember what they shared either, but I'll tell you what I heard. I heard you're not alone, there's help here, we understand how you feel, and we have very tidily grouped our tools into three lists of 12. And I was impressed by all of that. And they said, <laughs> they said, keep coming back, and I did, and I felt better there. And I was a little weirded out by their sharings and how they, why, how have they been spying on my life, right? And how are they looking? What? How did they know that this was the thing? But they did know, and I kept coming back, and um, I felt better almost immediately. I had another. I was still in school, so I had my one girlfriend who was in Al-Anon who 12-stepped me in, and then I had another BFF um, that I didn't know much about her. She, we were also in. She was also in art school with us. Um, and I ran to her one day and I said, you're not going to believe this. I went to this place called Al-Anon. And she's like, oh, thank God. Oh, finally. Oh. Turns out she was a sober member of AA. So I didn't know that until I told her about Al-Anon. But she was super happy that I found you people. And um, so... This was really this was really great because I had my two best friends and one was in Al-Anon and one was in AA and so I had my little I called them my panel of experts so I had my two people and I started going to meetings and I went to meetings I was going to school I was working I might have been working two jobs but I was going to meet and it was like ah oh, this is great and uh, and whenever I needed anything I would call up my Al-Anon friend or my AA friend and I would they would they would oh and it just you know and. Start, you know, I would ask them the questions, and I would share, and I would talk, and I would share, and, and I, I would, I went to a lot of meetings. I um, did things like put out chairs, put out literature, picked up literature, those things like that. I didn't have a sponsor. I didn't work a step. Oh, I did buy all the literature because you have to have all the literature, and I bought it all. And so they were all, you know, nicely stacked, neatly, with the spines not damaged or the pages turned or read or anything and um but and now I realize I should tell you what was happening like the week before um I had this conversation with the, my friend who 12 sent me in the program 
Um, I had broken up with this guy. I was depressed, I guess. I don't know. I was super sad. I, and I, I, don't, I don't know what. There was no, no professionals helping me diagnose, but I was super sad. I knew that I had no chance of ever being in a loving relationship. I knew I had no chance of ever being, um, having any happiness Ever. I, it was like I just, I just knew this, and I knew that I, um, I hated my life, I hated my job, I hated my apartment, I hated my friends. We weren't really friends. We were just like this pack of wild dogs that ran around, and it was all fine, and it was fine until the pack turned on you, and then you were the prey, and that's the way we were with each other. There was no friendship. There was no loyalty, kindness, consideration, respect, protection, none of that. Um, so I hated everything and everybody except my cat. And I didn't know, I didn't really want to kill myself, but I didn't know how to go on living. And I didn't know that there was an option. I assumed this was the ultimate result and that it would just sort of eventually happen. So this is where I was when I was complaining to my girlfriend that day before she took me to my first Al-Anon meeting. Uh, so I know that I was dying, and I know that if the messenger hadn't been there at the moment that I was willing, I wouldn't be here. Um, so, but that changed very quickly. And one of the things that I wanted early on in my program, because I felt bad all the time, everywhere all the time, like my life just had this undercoat of this awful dark gray, that even a good day wasn't, couldn't be as good, couldn't be all that good because of this under layer of awful. And so I just wanted to not be, not feel bad all the time. And it didn't take long before I didn't feel bad all the time. And then I was like, maybe now I could feel good more than I feel bad. And it, and then I, it did. A little while later, I started feeling good more than I felt bad. And then I was like, well, maybe I could, and it, you know, it was just painfully ridiculous, these tiny little goals that I would set for myself, you know, 1% increments or something stupid. Because, but this was because I literally had no, way to conceptualize the scope of what God could do. I had no way to understand the vastness of this program and the gifts that could come. So I had no, every little tiny scrap of tiny nothing that I begged for, I had no idea how tiny it was because it felt like everything, because I felt like I could, I was worth nothing, right? Does that make sense? Um, but things did get better, and I uh, was I felt better. I went to a lot of meetings. I helped do a lot of stuff. I, I didn't go to group conscience, because group conscience. Uh, <laughs> and I didn't go to things like this, and I didn't have a sponsor, because I had my panel of experts. And then one day I called my Al-Anon friend, and I was asking her some question, and, and the, the words she said to me were, that's the kind of question that you ask a sponsor. And I heard her voice shake. So I knew that her sponsor had suggested to her that she might be preventing me from getting a very useful tool by standing in the way and serving as a pseudo-sponsor. So she stepped out of the way. And uh, I went off in search of a sponsor. I was really mad at her for that for a minute. Um, and I had a couple of fits and starts um, asking. I asked some ladies about um, about helping me with this and, and some some different experiences with it. Uh, I when I and then it, a couple of those didn't work out so great, and, uh, and then I decided, well, I would just go ahead and kind of do my fourth step because I did my first step sort of uh, step one. Well, I went to a meeting. Check. Step two. I we used to go to church. Step check. Step three. And this is basically step two again. Check. And uh, so then I was, obviously the next thing is step four. So I bought the little book. And I started reading and writing, and with the same amount of self-conscious, everything was always so self-conscious in the sense that it, it had to be presented well because I was sure people would read it and it needed to look right, so it had to be the right amount of drama and sadness. and uh, Yeah. So that was a terrible idea. Uh, I can't ever imagine recommending that anyone write your own fourth step without any help or guidance from anyone. It was a terrible, terrible, utter failure. Except in the sense that I left from this short process feeling even worse, and I felt like I was back in that place after uh, about three years in the program that um, I was right back to where I'd started, where I didn't want to 
I couldn't keep on living the way I was living. I didn't really want to die, but that was probably the only uh, obvious outcome because this beautiful program that had worked for so many people had been handed to me on a silver platter, and like the loser that I am, I screwed it up, and that I was the one that it wouldn't work for. I was the one. Uh, well, of course that wasn't true uh, because I, unbeknownst to me, I wasn't working the program. <laughs> You can buy a vacuum cleaner and set it in your living room. But if you do not plug it in and use it, your carpets will stay dirty. And that's what was happening. I was just going to meetings. And I was doing an awful lot of things that are part of working the program. But I, what I never did was I, did, I didn't have a sponsor still. Uh, I had never worked the steps. I wasn't really getting into the literature. I was doing, all the, I was doing the best I could. But I don't want to, there's no, this is, not about, this is not about judgment. This is about the facts. I wasn't doing the thing that you that the, the literature says to do to get the result. Just like with a vacuum cleaner. You don't have to feel bad if your vacuum cleaner is just sitting in your living room. Just let it sit. But don't complain about your dirty floors. I was not doing the things that I was supposed to be doing. So I thought I had failed, but I'd never even done it. Make sense? So uh, I... <laughs> there was the Saturday morning meeting at NAVA. And, that when, and uh, I haven't been to NAVA in years. I don't know what it looks like there. But back then, there were those, those zigzaggy doors, the flex fabric-y kind of doors you'd zip it. Yay! Super! We'd pull two of those doors together, and there'd be all these tables and chairs. It was like a room for 20, and there were 50 of us crammed in there. I... It's possible I might still have a resentment about how the Al-Anons were crammed into that tiny back room, but whatever. So we were jammed into that little room, and I, but, but I worked at, um, I worked at Wolf Camera, and I worked at the mall. I worked at North Lake Mall, and the, anybody who's ever worked at a mall knows that you don't want to work Saturday night, because that's when you go out and party, but I love that Saturday meeting morning so much, that Saturday morning meeting that I, I volunteered to work the Saturday night shift at the mall because I wanted to be at that meeting every Saturday. And I would show up, and I would sit there in the meeting, and then I would leave and run to work because I had to leave immediately to get to work on time. So I was always in and out at that meeting. But it, that meeting meant an awful lot to me. And one day I was sitting at that meeting, and I was dying. I was in Al-Anon. I was dying again. Uh, I don't know what I was waiting on, I guess just to die. And there's this woman sitting over in the corner, She's in, I can see the corner where she's sitting relative to where I am. And she's talking, and she's shaking, and she's jingling while she talks. And I didn't know her name. And we went around the room and said our names, and I had the phone list. And she said, when we went around the room, she said her name. And I was like, oh, my God. And I marked it. And then I left the meeting as soon as it was over, and I tore off, and I went to work. And I got to, to work, and I went into the back room, and this, this is also vivid to me because it was just such a metaphor for how my life was and how I felt on my insides. My insides were like the back room at this mall store. It was all dirty and gross and smelled like cardboard and sadness. And <laughs> So I go into the back room, and with a regular, you know, like the old phone, and the, it didn't have, it was a push button, but I called her on this phone and I, I said, uh, would you be my sponsor? And she said, yes, baby, I will. And we talked for a little bit and for some reason she said, she started me on step three. I don't know why. I don't care why. That's what we started doing. She started, she told me about to say the prayer and gave me my direction for step three and we hung up and I did it. I had a sponsor. And, um, years later, Many years later, I found out she um, was there in her house, and her husband, who was, um, he had 30 years of sobriety when he passed. He had 30 years of sobriety when he passed. They were in their his and hers recliners. (laughs) They were probably smoking. And he said, who was that? And she said, I have no idea. (laughs) 
she's always talked to me about being a service. Always. Um, one of the one of the first things that I remembered feeling relief about when I got to Al-Anon was, like, I heard things like, um, "You're not alone in this," and 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 um, you know, it's it's going to be okay, and you know, all those things. But I heard, "Put the focus on you," and I was like, "Oh, finally." Ugh. Finally, I can take a moment for me. And I did. I got so good at it that um, one of the first things that she said to me was to get out of my uh, cheap bleep self and do something for someone else. And I was stunned by that because that was in direct contrast to keeping the focus on me. And <laughs> it took many years for me to understand what the, how those two things are how those two things, like the very, it's very, this is like high level, like maturity and emotional maturity stuff that we do here. This is advanced living. Uh, at least for me it was. I felt like I was always in the remedial classes. And so this was advanced stuff. And uh, for me to understand, like, when was appropriate to keep the focus on myself? Like when it, had, when it wasn't any of my business, which was tragically so much more than I ever thought. <laughs> There is very, very, very little in the world that is actually my business. Um, and then the other times, the other times, uh, doing something for somebody else. Well, what's in it for me? Um, well, literally everything. And so, when she said yes to this crazy person on the other end of the phone that she didn't even know, but she'd been taught when when somebody asks if you can you say yes you know if you unless you've got some other there's a legitimate reason to say no you say yes and um i'm so grateful she's still my sponsor today i have never not wanted what she had and um we started we started working the steps and she asked me all the questions you know do you have a home group and are you being of service in your home group are you out there you know, going to going to meetings and doing things like that, and um, and I did. I was in art school, so yes, I wore a lot of black, and it was the 90s, and we had chunky shoes, and and it was amazing. It was so amazing, but yeah, and I but I was also um, I didn't understand this at the time, but I was also super angry and super terrified of all of you. And I would sit in meetings and I would rock and I would stare at you and dare you to come near me um, and or less be stabbed, I'm sure. <laughs> this is my favorite threat. I've never actually stabbed anybody, but I'm always threatening to stab people for various <laughs> things. But so we, we were doing all this stuff. We, you know, working program. I started doing the, I started working the program. I started the steps and things like that. Uh, and then I remember um, I was with school and jobs and everything. I was so busy. And then I think at like, some point I um, things started to slow down. And maybe I, I don't remember the time. It's all muddled together now. But I remember calling her one day, telling her how I had no friends. Nobody ever called me, and I had no friends. And I was so lonely. Oh, would she help me? Oh, honey, why don't you come over to my house on Saturday? A group of ladies, we get together, and we have a little meeting. And come to my house. Ooh, Saturday. Ooh. I sleep in on Saturday. I'm super busy Saturday. Uh, super busy with uh, going to a video store to rent VHS tapes. That's what I was busy with on, that, on Saturdays. So, okay, so I don't know, weeks later, who knows, I don't know how long, many long time later, called her up, the same thing. I don't have any friends. Nobody loves me. Why don't you come over to my house on Saturday? Oh, no. <laughs> what else you got? Nothing. Time kind of passes. Still no friends. Still nobody loves me. My poor answering machine. The cassette tape in my answering machine <laughs> was gathering dust. Called her up. Oh, Barbara. I have no friends. Well, I don't know what to tell you about that. Hmm. And I, I think it, it may have been a separate call. It may have been that call. Well, what about that meeting at your house on Saturday? Can I come to that? <laughs> sure. When is it? Come and find out. Click. 
That's what, I don't know that that's what she said to me, but that's what I heard. So I, I called up my sweet friend Marin and said, can I come to that meeting with you? We go, yes, come on. So we got there, and, and it was fine until we got there, and then there was all these women there. There was like a million of them. And I, poor Marin, I was a barnacle on Marin that day, and I wouldn't let her, I was probably cut off the circulation to her hand and wouldn't leave her side because I was terrified of all these scary women. Um, they were just regular women. I was just terrified. Um, and I, but I got to go. She helped me go. And I got to hang out with these women, and I got to be close to my sponsor. And I couldn't sit next to her because there were people with time, and they got there early. And I, you know, it was like, but I was just in the same room with her, and I didn't care. I just wanted to be able to kind of soak this up. And then this was the worst and dirtiest trick that she ever played on me, was there were alcoholics in that room. And I did not know. She sprung those alcoholics on me. And what happened was, I got to know those women. And I fell in love with those women. Before I realized that they were the enemy. Air quotes, enemy. I thought it was so cute last night that Ron kept saying, for the people on the tape. <laughs> it's a CD. Or an MP3, I guess. I don't know. Whatever. Y'all are, somebody's Snapchatting this, right? Okay. Okay. I fell in love with those women before I knew that they were alcoholics. And they were the, it was the first chance that I got from a heart to start cracking open because a while back it had slammed shut and I hated I was serious when I said I hated everything and everybody except my cat it was a really long time before I started not hating everybody and everything except that cat and being able to be around all the women and learning that we're kind of in this disease together. It just takes a different form with some of you. I don't understand your form. It doesn't bother me. I don't have literally not a thing with alcohol, whatever. But all the other stuff that it says in the big book were stuff that I got to do sober. I didn't have to have, I did not have to have a chemical substance in my body to be resentful, to be afraid, to be restless, irritable, discontent, irrational, angry, all those things. Um, so that's fun. <laughs> but that, going to meetings and being able to go to the meeting, the living room meetings, those are special. I know that those are, most often the living room meetings are not, are not they're unofficial and you, you know, you find out about them by word of mouth and you get to go there. It's just a different just a different way to consume the program, and it was it was absolutely critical to my recovery. So I feel like maybe some fast-forwarding is in order. So I'll tell you, <laughs> Barbara told me in the beginning that her job as my sponsor was to drop me off at a, take me, lead me to a God of my understanding and drop me off there. And not in the, not in the way that that, that sounds, that sounds awful, like she's going to be like, bye! Have a nice life. I'm out of here. But she needed, to, she had to get me, she got me to the God of my understanding, and then she did need to leave me there because that's where I needed to have, this is where I needed to be able to put this reliance, this reliance needed to be on my higher power, not on, not on people, right? And um, so we went round and round on the God thing. Um, just out of courtesy and respect, we haven't been going round and round about it recently, two of us, because I've been just going round and round about it in my own head, but I'm not going to call her with it because it's the same stuff as it was ten years ago, whatever. Every now and then I have to go back through and re-understand God on a different level, but it always looks the same to me. The system is rigged. Uh, we get, whenever anything good happens, everybody goes, oh, it was a God thing. Whenever anything bad happens, they go, self-will. 
It's like, you know, and which is, of course, it's a real sort of elementary kind of binary view of the situation. It's vastly more complex than that, but this was my basic argument. Um, and so one time um, I was pitching a fit because uh, I was, <laughs> I was just, when I started buying cars for myself, they were so bad. All those nice free cars that my parents gave me that ran and that worked, and those were, they may have been more redneck than my taste, but they were functional, and they drove. And all of the cars that I bought for myself did not. And so they were, and so when you buy an old beat-up uh, Volvo, uh, you got to take it to the shop a lot, and guess what? you got to take Volvo to the Volvo shop. And that's expensive. So I had... Two beat up Volvos in a row. Uh, it was they were awful. Anyway, but I was on my cell phone by this time. We'd gotten to cell phones in my parking lot in my apartment, and I was stomping around and screaming at Barbara about all this money for my car, and it was going to cost in the four four figures to repair it. And I'm and then who knows what I was ranting about? But she said this to me, and y'all, I swear to God, this is the first time she ever said this to me. But she said as long as you believe that you have a punishing God, that's exactly what you have. And I heard it that day. I'm sure it's not the first time she said it to me, but that's the first time I heard it. And um, I was like, okay. And so I figured, I, I, I figured out the loophole. I know how we do this thing. We try things for 30 days, and we see how things change in 30 days. So I said, okay, fine, fine. And I decided that what I was going to do was for 30 days I was going to decide that my God wasn't a punishing God. And then at the end of 30 days I would be able to call her up and tell her how she was wrong and see, don't you just see. And I don't know, when was that? That was 98? 99? Still good. My God quit punishing me that day. Um, crazy how that works. Um, but he did, and he quit, he quit punishing me that day. And I have, there's too many stories to tell. They're all really hilarious about all the, my awful cars and my awful close calls and my terrible apartments. I always lived in the worst neighborhoods um, and all that kind of stuff. But how I just, you know, I don't know. I don't know why I wasn't, I don't know why I didn't have more terrible and horrible and scary things as a part of my story because it certainly wasn't because I was not, certainly wasn't because I was keeping myself out of harm's way. I was always putting myself in harm's way, and I, so I don't know. But here's one of the other things I learned in the program. You don't have to know why to do the next right thing. So, um, but that, that moment with me screaming at her on my cell phone in my parking lot about God and punishing, that, you know, it, it changed things. And fast forward a bit longer, um, I... Got a, I had been laid off. I got a new job. I was working up in Alpharetta. I lived in Midtown, um, and so the commute up 400 was, um, I wanted to kill somebody. It was awful. And I had actually, things had kind of, you know, I always heard in meetings, and I always, I always heard that you know we get to we get to redo everything in the program. We we have a life, and we screw a bunch of stuff up, and we but we get a chance to redo it in the program, and, and we get a chance to redo everything. And, and I maybe that's true. I don't know. It sounds really good, but I had a chance to redo an awful lot of things, and I had a chance to get better, and I had a chance to get a job that I didn't hate with people I didn't hate. Uh, I had a chance to earn enough money so that I could not live in the scariest most dangerous part of town, two doors down from a drug house. I didn't have to live like that anymore. And all these things started happening because of just, like, doing the, the program and, and working and doing the steps. And it's like we ran out of time, and I don't know how to tell you all the things. But, but so life was getting better. And but I'm going to go back again to the, when I hated everybody and everything. That included my family. Um, my family, by this time, my family was all in Atlanta. I have a brother and a sister, a mom. My dad actually was still in Texas at the time. He was remarried um, to a woman, and he was living in Texas. My grandparents were here in Atlanta, and I, I didn't, you know what, I probably never hated my grandparents, but everybody else. Um, 
But I hated my family. Um, there was periods of time where I would never go be around them without bringing one of my friends because another thing I heard was you never have to do anything alone again in Al-Anon. And I took that so literal. And it was, I thought that they were obligated to attend my family functions with me because I didn't have to do it alone. And so I always had a friend with me. And there was a period of time where there was a lot of whispers about my relationship status. And... <laughs> and, and there... Not that there's anything wrong with that, but it was like they, it was like there was all this weirdness behind the family because I always had a new I had a new girl with me every time we went somewhere. <laughs> so I didn't want never in the beginning in any of that list did I ever want a relationship with my mother or my sister or my or anybody. I didn't want any of that. I just wanted to not hurt all the time, and um, I. Uh, was I'd working for this great job, and I heard myself one day say to my manager, I want to apply for the job in Texas, and it surprised me because I didn't know I was about to say that to him. And then I was like, ugh, I will never get this job. And then I got the job, and I was like, ugh, they won't, it'll, it's going to take forever. And it was two months to the day that I got the offer till they were packing up my stuff and driving it out of Midtown to Texas. And I was like, this is fine, y'all. I have 12 years in the program. I'm going to be just fine. Uh, and I got to Texas, and it all fell apart um, because it wasn't fine. I was terrified, and it was awful, and I hated it, and I hated the meetings, and I hated the people, and I, they didn't look like any of you. And that's the funny thing is they looked exactly like all of you. There was nothing different about any of it, but except for all of the little things that I would dig up and focus on and how it was different. Um, but it wasn't any different, and I got told by a lot of people a lot of times, go to meetings, go to meetings, sit down, shut up. Call intergroup to sign up for literally everything you can sign up to volunteer for. Go to meetings, go to meetings, go to meetings. And that's what I did. And I went to an awful lot of meetings in Dallas. And um, I um, spent a long time um, not even being able to be polite when people said, how do you like Texas? I couldn't even control myself and say, oh, it's lovely, thank you. I couldn't even. I'd be like, oh, this place, I hate it. Ugh. Years I spent doing that. And let me tell you that just like in the beginning when I was a newcomer in Al-Anon, and I'm sure that I vomited my garbage up on every meeting in the beginning, and nobody ever said boo to me. Nobody ever made a side eye. I never noticed side eye. Nobody said nothing. They just let me continue to come back until I figured it out. Those people in Texas just let me vomit my complaining about being there and not being here with y'all until I figured it out. And then at least, I still didn't like it, but at least I was able to shut my mouth about it. And lovely people, lovely people there. And um, what I got out of it, the things that I didn't know I want are the things that I have now. So the how is go to meetings, call your sponsor, ask them how, and do what they say. That's all that I need to tell you about that. But the what happened to me as a result is what I'll tell you now. Um, my, I have a relationship with my mother. Well, and I had that very special relationship with my grandparents. And my grandfather, he's gone. My grandmother's 99. And I got to see her the other day. And she's, she looks good for somebody 99 with Alzheimer's. Um, and I got to visit with her, and it was nice. Um, I got to help my mother write a will and sort through some of his possessions to divvy up to the grandkids. Um, and I got to do it without being awful, because I used to never be able to do anything to my, with my mom without being awful to her. And then one day my sponsor said, um, treat your mother the way you treat me. And I was horrified at the gap. It was so vast, the gap. I, treated, I, I fought to take my sponsor's gross ashtray and throw it in the trash. But I wouldn't lift a finger to help my mom cook a meal that she had paid for and was going to prepare for me in her home. And so I very quickly got to rectify that because of the example that I got. I knew exactly what that meant. And I go to my mom's house and I take out her trash and I clean her dishes and I I do all that for her because that's what I would do if I was at my sponsor's house. And then I'm not dumb. And so I was able to put two and two together pretty quick. And I was like, well, if I'm going to treat my mom like my sponsor, I'm going to treat my, my sister and brother like I treat my friends. 
And what I did was I quit getting all up in their business. And I don't call you up and tell you your life, so I quit calling them up and telling them their life. And I quit judging their choices, and I quit um, criticizing their choices. And I just started being supportive, and it was real surprising to them, I think. Um, But the result of that was that when my sister got married, she was living in New York at the time, and when my sister got married, I was talking to her on the phone, and... um, she was talking about all the stuff that she had to do and planning this wedding and it was all this and I don't know, I've never planned a wedding so I don't know but it was a lot of work and all this and she was like whoa, the stuff and she said that Adrian, her husband um, my fiance at the time was like, why don't you just get your, why don't you call one of your girlfriends to help you and I was like, why aren't you helping her ding dong, you're standing right there but um, she said I don't need my friends to help me I need my sister to help me And I got, in, I got invited. It was an honor. I got invited to be the Al-Anon speaker at the Icky Palm when it was in New York. And it was going to be the same weekend as my sister's wedding, and I had to tell them no. I had to thank them for the honor um, and tell them no. And they were like, we'll come get you. We'll take you to, yeah, you got to speak, didn't you? We'll come get you. We'll take you to a meeting. We'll do, and I said, you won't do any of that. You'll leave me be so that my family knows that when I'm there on her, for, for her, that I'm 100% there for her. I threw them to the curb so many times to be 100% there for you guys. It took me longer than I'd like to admit to figure out that y'all were trying to teach me to be 100% there for them. So I get to do that today. And um, my brother, who wasn't impressed with my cult, (laughs) he met... Um, he came out to a function that I did um, for a non-conference approved thing that I was doing. And uh, he came to the event and met one of my sponsees, and they hit it off, and they dated for a minute. And uh, it didn't work out, which was fine with me. Um, but she, he got to hear about the program through her. And he came to me and he said, I'm so proud of you. I had no idea you helped so many people. I don't know what she told him. (laughs) But he said how proud he was of me. And I get to be loving to my mother, and I get to be loving to my siblings. We all currently live in Texas. It's a long story. I also get to be um, loving to my twin three-year-old niece and nephew who are adorable. And, yes, I will show you pictures. Thank you for asking. (laughs) And I... um, I never had a relationship with my aunt, so I don't know what anting looks like, so I'm making it up as I go along, and it gets to be whatever I want it to be, and I'm doing pretty good, if I do say so myself. So all these things that I didn't know that I ever wanted were the gifts that y'all gave me. And they've been so precious. And um, I guess it's worth saying this too because I complained an awful long time I, I, the job that I went to Texas for it grew old after a time and then I spent it seems like many years complaining about that job I hated that job but, and I made fits and starts in trying to get out I tried to come back to Atlanta several times it never worked out it was never right It never, and I could not get out of Texas for the life of me oh my god uh, and then there was all this, um, this behind-the-scenes fruit basket turnover at my company. And my manager, we were having one of our annual reviews, and he says to me one day, he says, you need to be open to things, because if you're not open to things, then people will stop asking you. And I was looking at this man going, why is my sponsor's voice coming out of his face? <laughs> and... What I didn't know was that just down the road, a couple of months after that, all this change started happening with my company, and I ended up applying for these jobs. And I, and I ended up getting this job in Dallas doing a thing that I never knew I wanted to do, was pretty sure I didn't want to do. I love it so much, as much as I hated my old job when I hated it at its worst. I love my new job that much or more. I get to be of service literally every day. I, I manage people. It's like sponsoring. Um, and, and I have a lot of experience sponsoring. So I, it's not, I'm not incapable of this job. And I love it so much. I have a little house that I love. It's in a safe neighborhood. It's safe. 
I still have two cats that I will be honest, I do like more than most people. But they're safe. It's clean. I, all these things that I could barely manage or didn't understand, I'm like, I, this is the gift that y'all gave me. It wasn't just about, I didn't just get dropped off at the feet of my higher power. I got taught how to be a person in the world and to be a grown-up and to contribute in a way that was meaningful and fulfilling. And I, um, I am constantly overwhelmed at the gift, knowing I will never pay it back. Thankfully, nobody's asked me to. We don't have to do that. My hope is that something I've shared has given you a piece of hope, given you a little something, a little thing, that if you're struggling, it'll get you to the next thing. Just hang on long enough to get to the next breath. And, um, and then, after a while, it won't be so dire. It was like that in the beginning, but after a while, you'll be able to hang on, and you'll realize it's been 20 breaths. And then after a while, you'll be like, oh, it's been like a month and a half. And that's how it happens. It just keeps getting good, and it just keeps getting better. And it's not always easy, and it's not always happy, but it just keeps getting better. Um, I'm ever so grateful for the chance to be here and to speak to you all, and thank you for your love and energy and attention and um the end <laughs>